Welcome to this week's episode of Stand Out, growing in the organizing and productivity profession brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Every episode, we will learn from NAPO members and subject matter experts as they share their successes, challenges, best practices, proven strategies, industry developments, and more. And now, here's your host, Claire Kumar, NAPO member since 2010. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stand Out. I'm productivity catalyst Claire Kumar and thrilled to be your host. This is a podcast, as you know, all about organizing and productivity professionals bettering your business. So this has been a crazy tough year, and I've been drawing on all my resources and contacts to help build my resilience toolkit. Now, I remember one speaker I was talking to suggesting I go look for challenges and I go look for stressors to overcome. I'm like, heck no, they're always lying in wait. If I just turn around the corner, there'll be another one. I don't have to go and look for any. And I think this year has proven that to be true. What I've chosen to do, though, is look at how I can continue to build skills to ride these tumultuous waves and avoid going under the water. So part of that toolkit to me involves integrating positive psychology. So positive psychology is a psychology that has a positive orientation. According to positivepsychology.com, there's a focus on well-being, contentment, excitement, cheerfulness, the pursuit of happiness, and meaning in life. You've probably recognized names such as Martin Seligman and maybe his book Flourish or Learned Optimism and others such as Abraham Maslow, Viktor Frankl, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the author of Flow, a book I adore, and Carol Dweck, author of Mindset. So today I'm very pleased to have with me Jennifer Card. She's a board member of the Canadian Positive Psychology Association, and she's going to help us explore why an awareness and integration of a positive psychology mindset will benefit us and our business. So Jennifer is an executive leadership and well-being coach who believes that a leader's greatest asset is their mind and spending more time to psychologically self-care is critical for leaders who face complex challenges. So Jennifer, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm wondering if you could start by sharing your definition of positive psychology. Sure, so there are several definitions and really what it is, if you think of psychology on a continuum, on one end of the continuum, you have mental illness and on the other end of the continuum, you actually have mental flourishing or thriving. And somewhere in between, there's that point that a lot of us can sit at where we're not necessarily experiencing any anxiety or mental illness, but we're not really thriving and being in that place where we really want to be. And so positive psychology is the branch of psychology that studies how can we help people to get from maybe just sitting in that neutral position to that position of thriving. And so they've looked at all the way back to ancient philosophy to current day mechanisms that people are utilizing in their lives that have helped them. And so it's really a study of interventions and applications in real life on how to just bring yourself from that position of I'm doing okay to mentally I'm actually doing very well. 
Yeah, and it was missed in the early stages of psychology because it was really looking at the darker side or when there are real mental health challenges in particular, where it kind of came from. And this is a shift now to say, well, everybody can be looked after from a psychological perspective and you can go from okay to great. Yeah, and it's really important to note, it's a good point that it doesn't negate the criticalness of actually studying mental illness because we have to look at factors that can ameliorate that. And it's not replacing anything either. It's just an adjunct form of psychology to say, hey, let's also think about the positive aspects and how we can actually change our mindsets, which can then influence the way that we experience the world. Yeah, because we get to control us and the way we think about things. And so what can that look like? So you talk about well-being at work. And so what can we do? You said practices and interventions. Can you give us an idea of how this shows up in things we can do that will impact the way we show up for our clients, the way we approach our work? So there are several factors here. And one of them is that self-work that we can do to take care of ourselves. Mood and emotion are contagious and your clients will actually pick up on that. So doing that sort of introspection self-work to really get to yourself to that best possible self, that place that you really want to be, your clients will pick up on that, that new energy that can happen. And from a practical application, positive psychology provides things like Cooper Rider's appreciative inquiry, where it helps you work with your clients to be very solution focused. We're starting with, okay, what is the reality? What are the strengths of reality? A lot of the times what happens is we tend to focus on what's not working and we try to fix that. Whereas positive psychology kind of helps us to focus on what is working. Let's build on that. And that's a great way to approach a solution focus with your clients. Absolutely. I remember that being a very fundamental part of my coach training is the appreciative inquiry, looking and noticing and observing something that's going well, and then building on to get to that better place. So yeah, I think it keeps the esteem of the client up. And it also helps you to identify your own strengths as well. I think we, as a society, live in a place where we think we should be doing this and we should be this. And that can be a very tangled web. And it's hard to deconstruct that sometimes and remember, it's like, what do I want? What am I good at? What am I curious about? What makes me feel good? What gives me vitality? And that in and of itself are part of your strengths. There's great strength from being able to clarify what you want, because then you're detangling from that societal pull, those external messages, those shoulds that you were saying that might be pulling to you towards a direction. I mean, a great example from an organizing perspective might be gifts that we receive from people that we feel like we have to pull out and keep on display when so-and-so comes over because you don't feel like you're really entitled to actually let them go. And so that work to develop a sense of an entitlement to follow through on your own desires. Yeah. And I think that speaks to authenticity, but I think you've also brought up an important point now is boundaries, being able to know where your line in the sand is and what's important to you and to respect that. And I think that that boundary, especially during the pandemic has been a very blurred line of work-life balance and knowing how to sort of shut down your work. I think people are overworking at the moment, using it as a distraction. And these are not great practices for the long run. So understanding that idea of what's healthy for me, where can I actually stop my day, close down my computer and go do an activity that's good for my mind and body. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm giving a talk next week for an organization. And one of the top challenges is that blurred boundary that exists now. Because, And for a lot of people who haven't been working from home, I think we've gone from a low single digit percentage to 42% of the workforce is now from home. And we don't have experience setting those boundaries. And especially now with everybody home, you might not have even a discrete office. So it might be you're walking by that work zone all the time and it's pulling you in. So yeah, it'll be interesting for our audience of productivity coaches and organizing professionals, especially those who've taken their job virtually, is to think about, I call them productivity table stakes, the things that you need in the day to sustain your energy. But yeah, to your point, what do you need so that you can continue in this marathon to show up and give your energy to your clients and being entitled to power down, to have play, to have connection with your family and to really shut the virtual door potentially on your work is a really powerful thing to get to. So let's maybe take that as an example. Can people work on this on their own and how would they do that? Or do they need to work with someone? What are the ways that someone could get to better boundary setting if we're to use that for an example? Sure. So that's a good question. Coaching is always a great path to that. And the reason is that we don't sometimes see our blind spots. We sometimes don't get challenged on the fact that we aren't setting the boundaries that we need to. I know a particular client that I work with, just a beautiful soul, but kept taking too much on her plate and just couldn't say no. And so what we really worked on was helping her to find a way to say no that was comfortable for her. So it wasn't necessarily that hard no, it was instead, I think her motto was, I'm sorry, I can't help you right now. Maybe let's circle back in two months or something to that effect. So that coaching can definitely help with that. I think the other step is also just taking that self-reflective moment. I don't think that professionals take enough time to self-reflect and to incorporate in part of their work where they actually sit and check in with themselves and become aware of how they're feeling. Along with that self-awareness work and boundaries comes that energy bucket idea to check in. How are you feeling? What is giving you energy? Be aware in your day what you actually potentially need to like close the door on a little bit more and potentially maybe open the door a little bit on as well. What gives you energy? What is the best part of your day? Obviously, we have to do those parts of our day that we don't want to, that are administrative, that maybe are draining, but it doesn't mean that we have to focus on that, that we can actually maybe incorporate an activity after that will energize us again. So, so many things in that. I love the idea of an energy audit to look at through your day, the things that are boosting you and the things that might be taking your energy down. I just had a post on Facebook that just kind of went on fire. I asked people tell me a mundane thing that you really enjoy doing. And the goal of the post was really to have people sort of observe, oh my gosh, look how many people like laundry and ironing. I can't believe it. How many people like weeding and vacuuming and almost everything that somebody detests, somebody else loves. And I know we're all different, but I often think about inviting a perspective of joy or trying to reframe to find some kind of joy in those mundane things to bring the energy, like not have it so they take so much or actually find a way to give you energy. Does that ever come up for you in terms of reframing activities? So they might- Yeah, it does. And and for instance, cooking for my family on a personal note, it's like I used to sort of think, oh, it was something that I had to do. And now that I'm so much with school and with my work, I'm so much in my head in the day that it actually gives me a physical activity where I can offer back to my family in the day. And I've completely reframed my, and I put on music and it's kind of, that is actually my transition activity from work to home life with my home office is cooking. 
And so you're absolutely right that if you know that you have a mundane activity that you have to do that's part of your work life or home life is to add a bit of zest to it in some way, whether that's music or maybe it's like, okay, if I get that done, now I get to actually go out and walk the dog or whatever it is that you enjoy. I love it. And it's funny that you say zest. I love that word. I have a couple of podcast interviews to do this morning and early afternoon, immediately after the second one, because this is one of those intense presence experiences. I am going to be chopping Seville oranges and adding some lemon zest in because (laughs) I know I will need something where I don't have to be as, well, I have to be present with the knife, but I don't have to be as present emotionally as to what's going on as when I'm in an interview. Yeah. And it's interesting you brought up that point about presence as well, because it comes in so many different phases. And part of positive psychology is the study of mindfulness. And I also like to say that there's a big difference between mindlessness and mindfulness. And it's not to say that they're both not important. So mindfulness is when we actually consciously zone into the moment. And the beauty of mindfulness, and it doesn't necessarily have to be through meditation. A lot of people interchange that meditation is a path to mindfulness, but there are several other paths such as walking out in nature, or maybe even reading a really good book that you can sort of tuck into. But when you actually are present with mindfulness, you do not have the capacity as much to ruminate about the past or worry about the future. And that's why part of the reason why it's so good for our brains and research suggests that we spend 47% of our day doing a task distracted. And so if we think we can actually stretch that capacity, how much more efficient we might be and productive we might be if we can actually incorporate mindfulness. Now, the other point about mindfulness is the more that we practice it, the more that it actually will resonate throughout our life. It's not a one hit wonder, like you don't experience it for that moment. It actually stretches out. I've been mindful. I'm like tick. (laughs) That's right, tick. And you go on to the next. Whereas mindlessness, people say to me, and one of the key factors about mindfulness is that you lose sort of a track of time. And that speaks to flow, which you've mentioned earlier. So people say to me, well, I lose track of time when I'm watching a series on Netflix. And I always say, do you know what? That's a great distraction. That's a mindless activity. There's nothing wrong with that in terms of distracting and relaxing and maybe transitioning, but just to understand that it's slightly different from that mindful presence that is there because you're not distracted. Especially when you're going on binge episode three or four. It's a powerful distraction. So there might be some boundary setting. And I'm speaking from self-experience. I Until the last two months, okay, three, I had hardly watched anything. The occasional movie I would watch, and that was quite time-bound. But these series where they're putting out nine episodes, and you're like, oh my God, I just need to know what happens next. Really tough. Really tough. The thing there is... in. There are two separate activities again, but at the same time, it's like, how do you feel after you've watched that? And if you feel good and relaxed, like you've had a little holiday in your mind, then go for it. That actually speaks to what's going on with the news right now. The news is just one negative aspect after the next half the time from the elections to the Black Lives Matter. With a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of fun at the end, like pandas sliding down the thing at the zoo. so minimal. Oh, it's what, 15 seconds, maybe, With versus the, the hour. Down and, everyone went, oh, and everyone was relieved because there was some positive news. Now, the thing about the news, like Netflix or binging on different things, is experiencing how you feel afterwards. So I'm a person that I would be very sensitive to watch the news at the end of the day and then be able to transition to relax to then sleep well. Yes. So I know that I actually have to get my news in the morning. 
so that my brain can process it and my emotions can process it throughout the day. And other people can actually watch the news right up into the time they go to sleep and they're completely fine. It actually makes them feel better. So I'm not saying one is right or wrong. I'm saying just be aware of how it's impacting you. Same with caffeine, same with Thai food, like (laughs) all of these things, this self-reflection, I call it tuning in to really engage with not just the sensations in the body, what's coming up for you emotionally, spiritually, all of it. Is there a process you have for this self-reflection or something When you say pause and self-reflect, can you give some guidance on what that would look like? So from a positive psychology perspective, one of the ways that I find very reflective is gratitude journaling, which gives you that moment in the day. You can write them down or you can even just think about them. And the great thing about gratitude is practicing gratitude, where you actually sit and contemplate three things that you feel very grateful for in your lives that are true to you. It actually can interrupt the stress response. So not only is it a great self-reflective aspect to learn more about what gives you energy, it actually is also an interrupter to the stress if it's starting to sort of come into your psyche. So that's one reflective practice. Another reflective practice would be potentially even just talking out what you're feeling. In neuroscience, it's called affect labeling. And Lieberman is one of the lead professors on this, and you can Google him if you want to watch more on this topic. But what they've actually seen in research is if you're able to talk it out or write it out, what you're really afraid of, what emotion you're really experiencing at the base of worry is fear generally, that in and of itself will help to lessen the experience because you become aware of it. And it, it allows you to actually be more concise and clear on what's at the root of the emotions that you're experiencing. So that's another reflective practice that I find very effective, especially during the pandemic. I love that. And it actually reminds me of my coaching practice. I ask clients to self-reflect in completing a client profile. And I'm realizing there's the first opportunity for them to tune inward. And it's a big cue for me as to how ready they are to do that kind of activity as we work coaching together. So yeah, powerful, because if you can't articulate it, and they might not be able to in the written word, so we can do it together as well, right? The other thing that you probably have seen out there is like the Myers-Briggs or the DISC or any type of objective. They're called, the fancy word is like psychometric assessments or surveys. And when I do these with clients, I don't say like, I don't believe in labeling and I don't say, well, if it says this, this is true for you. But what it does do is it helps you to reflect and have an objective piece of information that you can go, I agree with that or I disagree. And either way, that is a form of self-reflection. So yeah, sure you find yourself rebelling your at practice. Yeah, yeah I you're like, that's virtue. not me. Right. Make a note of it and say that in of itself is a self-reflective activity to say that's actually not me. And I'll tell you why. Yeah, exactly. Very provocative. So these are, yeah, definitely easy things you can do on your own or with somebody, a coach or a therapist. It can help you kind of get unstuck because the beauty of working with someone else, from my experience, having worked with both for many years, is perhaps there's a focus on the time to actually be self-reflective. Yes, definitely. And a forced need to verbalize. So I actually have to express these things. And sometimes immediately with the expression of it, you start to feel better. I don't know how many people have called me to get help for organizing or productivity work. And they're like, I feel better. I feel better after just the discovery call experience. Well, there's something to being on the path. To actually putting aside that moment where you pause and say, I'm actually intentionally making a movement towards more self-discovery 
that action alone is just getting on the path. And the path is a never ending journey. There is no finite journey to our paths. And so the more that we can stay true to that authentic path and just say, hey, I'm actually carving out time for myself and jumping back to the earlier discussion about boundaries and what's happening right now with leaders and busy people who are they're used to being on airplanes. And what do you do on an airplane? Well, you could be there for eight hours. You actually have time to process. You have time to self-reflect. I know I personally have some of my most creative and innovative thoughts when I'm on an airplane because I'm forced to sit still. And we've lost that right now. And I also hear leaders who used to process their day and think about their day and reflect when they were driving home or getting on the subway. 100%. And we don't have that. We walk out our door of our office and we're already into the home life. And so that's why I really suggest that it's important to take that time, even if it's saying, okay, I'm shutting down my computer and now I'm going to go out for a walk and just reflect on your day. What went well? And again, not what went wrong, what went well. Do we have a natural tendency to look for what went wrong? And I think I grew up with that. And I don't know if it was part of a critical environment or whether we have a natural bias to look for those things. It's a very good point. So yes, we have a protective mechanism in our brain. Our amygdala loves to actually, it gets fired up by the front of our prefrontal cortex that says like, hey, there could be something that's surprising or change and that registers right away. And our hypervigilance likes to look for the negative as a protective mechanism. But the beautiful thing about that is if we can become aware and when we start to feel that response in our body, we can actually do an activity to shift our focus. Because our brains like to register change right away as stress, if we actually change our mindset and our relationship with stress and look at it as a challenge for those stressful moments that we can, some we can't, obviously, but the ones that we can, if we actually can say, hey, this is actually a really cool challenge then it won't actually register in that vigilance negative spiraling that can happen within our system. And that actually speaks to growth and fixed mindset. We'll go there, but changing that perception of stress and challenge must have an immediate physiological effect. Then cortisol is not going through the roof kind of thing. Is that the shift? Yeah. And Sean Acker from Harvard, he actually did some research with crumb on this idea of a stress mindset. So if you're interested in this topic, you can Google that and find some more information on that. But it's launched from the work of Carol Dweck and that mindset matters. It matters in how we approach a challenge or we avoid a challenge. Not only does it matter for our performance, but it matters for our physiological response as well. Absolutely. Let's say you're bathing in the stress, which is having an effect on your body. I'm reading Gabor Mate's When the Body Says No right now, and it goes through a number of different illnesses. and really some commonly observed situations or reactions to stress. And I'm thinking, boy, there's a lot of learning that can be done or behaviors and practices that could help us really skirt some of the chronic illnesses, which are sort of at epidemic proportions now in the population. Yeah. And that's definitely a hope. It's worth continued research in that field, definitely. And those little bits of stress that pop up in our day, I mean, those could be motivating. There's nothing wrong with all stress. It's that sustained chronic stress that is lying underneath that we actually really have to look at. And I really believe in that idea of changing our relationship with stress and saving that response in our system for those stressors that really matter and need our attention and not giving it over to psychological things that maybe are not necessarily threatening and being able to divvy that up. Yeah. So it's holding on to your reserves for when you really actually need to bring them to bear. Yeah. I have a 
stressful situation that'll be coming up in a few months. And I wouldn't have looked at it this way five years ago, but right now I think, well, okay, I've got practices I know to keep me grounded. This is going to be interesting. I can stay curious about it. I don't have to feel like it's a tsunami going to just drag me and I can get some high ground here and I can watch what's happening. And if I need to go higher, I'm going to go higher. So it's, I feel much calmer knowing I've got some things to count on. And I've also, and I wanted to go back to the other point we just parked there, but building support has been something that's helped me immensely, knowing I'm in a loving relationship now, which wasn't true for a long, long time. And I have a great lawyer. I have a great doctor who I really feel is aligned with me. I had to fire one before kind of thing. So before we go back to, was it mindset and there were a couple of things we want to talk about. Can you just talk about building supports? Because I think that's also part of being resilient. Yeah. And I think that comes down to what I call priming and consciously taking effort to become, use your resources and reflect on your resources as well. And I think it's also tied to what I call stress unbunching. And when we get stressed, what we tend to do is it kind of goes viral in our life. And we feel like if one thing is legitimately stressful, we feel like, oh, everything's like super stressful. And so an activity I say is just to draw a circle on a piece of paper, put all the priorities in your life around that circle, pie it up and say like, really on a percentage basis, is this area of my life, how am I doing here on a, you can use whatever scale you want. And when you actually step back and reflect on that wheel, you're going to see more than likely that maybe only one or two areas of your life are really what's causing you stress. And so you can kind of unbunch and untether it from the other elements. And so like you said, you have these other resources that can supersede that one defining stressor moment so that it doesn't take over your entire life. It allows you to focus and say, okay, what do I need to do then to deal with this one little area? Exactly. And where I need to up-level support. Exactly. I need to go find that knowledge or emotional support or whatever it is. And that goes back to that in and of itself is a self-reflective activity that you can do when you are under stress to actually look at what's really needing my attention right now and what isn't. And we might observe these kinds of stresses in our clients when they're having a challenge with something and you're there as that support that they've brought in. So we're fulfilling that role, but there might be a, do we need additional support? Does a therapist need to be brought in? Do we actually need, oh, well, I need a whole moving company to take X, whatever it is to address it. Where do we need to go? It's amazing. I'm sure you experience this with your coaching clients as well, that if you can sometimes just hit on that one thing that's really true and authentically bothering, that it can just relax the whole system if you can kind of get to that place. But that would probably be true with their clients too. If there's just that one thing that's really affecting everything that they're doing, if you can help them to get to that one place, it it could just sort of relax the whole system. What a powerful opportunity that is. And and one of the earlier episodes, we talked about bringing coaching into the practice. So being with that questioning, curious mindset, you'll have a much better chance at being open to uncovering what that is. And there's a role for that. You don't have to be a therapist to stay curious about things. I love the word curiosity. And I think it's an underutilized skill that we all have. And I think it is an art of self-reflection in and of itself to say, what are you really curious about? And how can you stay curious? Curiosity is linked to listening too, as you know. What are you curious about in the other individual? And how can you stay curious in a helpful state? There's a wonderful professor, Edgar Schein, who talks about helping. And 
it was profound for me to, he has a simple phrase about staying in a state of humble inquiry. And so when you are needing to help the other person to not go into overfixer mode, but to stay in that state of humble inquiry, how can I help you best? Being curious about that. That Facebook post that I talked about, I opened it with, with the word curious because <laughs> it's like, tell me about what you love to do. That is like you just other people would think is just the pits. And even to remember to ask yourself what you're curious about too, not just the other person. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great word. Yeah. And it reminds me now my daughter is just finishing high school and thinking about university. And this is a state where like, you've got to be curious, but you also have to narrow down. So it's a real dance between this openness and then also like tuning in on what's pulling her interest forward. So anyway, interesting place to be. We were talking about positive mindset and there's one thing that I wanted to get a little bit of clarity on because we're going through this sustained challenge now. And I think of Viktor Frankl's experience. He's an Austrian Holocaust survivor, wrote The Man's Search for Meaning. And I think of the Stockdale, I don't know what they call Realism. it. Yeah. So is it better to be positive? Is it better to be optimistic? Is it better to be realistic? How do we reconcile what a good approach is to sustain a healthy mindset moving forward. Yeah. And I think you've raised a lot of great points. And by the way, I love Man's Search for Meaning. I think it's a very powerful book. But I think that's why Carol Dweck really hit a nerve because it doesn't say you have to be one or the other, but it's more about being an open mindset. So she basically put forward this idea that you can approach a challenge with a fixed or a growth mindset. We all have the capacity to have either or, and we all can have one or the other in different contexts in our life. It doesn't mean you're just a fixed mindset person and you're a growth mindset person. I'm open would be a fixed mindset. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so a growth mindset, basically what it says is when you're approached with a challenge, it's letting go of the need to be a sudden expert on it. It's letting go of the need to know that you have to do it perfectly. It's leaning into the fact that you can learn as you go, that failure probably will happen along the way. But just to stay curious, and there's your word again, to just learn, to find resources, to trudge forward, roll up your sleeves and kind of dig in and you're open and you know that you're going to grow from that experience. Whereas a fixed mindset is like, I can't do that. That's just going to stress me out. I'm not going to do it. And you sort of, that energy is avoidance right away. So. I think that's why she hit such an important nerve, if you will, is because it kind of encapsulates all of that. It's not about not being realistic about what's in front of you, but it's a way in which you engage with it that matters. I love that. I'm reading a bit of Matt Kahn's work. He's a bit of a spiritual teacher and whatever arises, love that is his book. That's a big book about acceptance. And part of it is talking about recognizing this innocent being that you are and holding onto that beginner's mindset, innocence, curiosity, humility. And it's interesting as coaches and consultants, we go in with an, I've got the answers kind of, I'm going to give you what you need sometimes. And we've seen that in a lot of television shows with how things are presented. And I think we can be more effective by holding on to this. I don't have all the answers. I have a wealth of things that I can offer up for consideration. Let's see how you might respond to, but that holding on to curiosity is really profound. And I think to that point, and 
to your point is also, it's important to have those conversations that are so emergent, whether that's you with a coach, whether that's you with a friend, that's whether it's you with a client, that you come with your ideas, they come with their ideas, there's an openness to actually learn. And there's a synergy that can come out of that, that emerges from that, as opposed to like, this is the way you should do it. Well, it may not be once you actually get talking to and being curious and finding out what they actually need. It's a wonderful part of the discussion I have with clients when they say, well, you're a coach. Are you going to tell me? Are you going to give me something? And so to to sort of give them a structure under which I stay in that curious place, respecting who they are as a human animal and how their nervous system responds to things, and then offering up what we know and have learned, but may not be true for this individual. So that's right. Really lovely. I have one question more for you. You talk about self-care for our psychology, psychological self-care, and I hadn't ever heard of it in that way before. We've talked about a lot of things. Have we talked about it already, or is there something more to say to explain psychological self-care? Thank you for that. I'm glad that you like that term. I'm working with that term right now in my research. So we all know how to physically take care of our bodies. There's been so much literature over the years we know to sleep right, eat right. We know all these things. We also know, and we're learning now that the mind, body, and spirit are interchangeable, that you can be a top level executive, you can run marathons, you can eat a clean diet, but if you're not happy, your well-being is not going to be at a hundred percent. And so we know that we actually have to respect and give energy to all areas of our lives. And This is why I say psychological self-care isn't just about, I'm going to the spa for one day. It's about a daily practice of just like you take care of your body, how do you take care of your mind? And burnout doesn't happen overnight. And psychological self-care doesn't happen overnight either. It's those slow little drops that matter that we fill our bucket. And psychological self-care can come in so many forms. And it really is what makes you feel good? What calms your mind? What engages you mentally? What engages your curiosity? Could be mindfulness. It could be a walk in nature. It could be reading a book. It could be listening to music. But you already know those things. It's just making a list and saying, okay, I need to add more of those in my day. What are the rituals that evolve from that that are going to be anchors in the way you show up? And they might serve you for a time and then you might need to move on to something else. I just have to switch therapists after 13 years of relationship with one. And it's funny, it's coming because the company no longer pays for that program and so on. But in our last conversation, I had the sense that I have come to the end of my learning with this wonderful individual. And it's like, I'm ready for a fresh perspective, a new way of reflecting things. So it's interesting. It is an evolution and it's a constant. And like you said, we're on a journey. There's no end date to this journey. There's a lifelong opportunity here to grow and learn how to be better, I think. And to just be aware and awake to what, how you're feeling, how you're connecting, where's your energy at? What do you need more of? What can you let go of in your life? There's obviously things that we can't let go of that maybe are taxing to our systems, but what can you let go of? And I think we can let go of more than we give ourselves permission to. And that goes back to the boundaries. It does. And a sense of self-worth. That's maybe we'll go there in the bonus question. (laughs) (laughs) I'll wrap up the interview now, but maybe you can just let everybody know where they can find out more about you and the work that you're doing in this area of positive psychology. I'm about to relaunch my website. 
and it's not ready today, but it'll be ready tomorrow. So it's www.eqhqconsulting.com. And it really is about finding equanimity at the headquarters. And it's also emotional intelligence work, which then leads to social intelligence, which then leads to collective intelligence. And it's being good with the self and with the system. And that's some of the work that I do from a coaching and organizational standpoint. So fascinating. So that was, you say it one more time for me and it'll be posted in the notes as well. But Sure, thank you. EQHQconsulting.com. Easy to remember, EQHQconsulting.com. I love that combination. That's brilliant. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I learned a lot. It consolidated and validated a lot for me. And I hope it's helped all you out there who've been listening and thinking about how to weather this really tough time. There's going to be more tough times that come and the more skills and tools that you have at your disposal will be just part of the toolkit that you can count on to show up and continue to serve as the best organizing and productivity specialist that you are. So wishing you all, as usual, a opportunity to stay safe out there, be kind to yourself above all, and enjoy this journey. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for today's episode of Stand Out, brought to you by NAPO the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Be sure to visit napo.net to join, learn more about our educational offerings, local chapters, and more.